Okay, so Sunday afternoon, having some peanut butter cookies, some coffee. Wondering what the rock's new project is. Some <laughs> some black rifle <laughs> coffee today. Yeah. Um, we're super stoked because uh, and there's stories behind this which I'll elaborate more in unless he elaborates on it himself. But we got Ricky here, man. What's up? Yes. So we have talked about this for how long, Ricky? Like a year. Yeah, just about. And now it's finally come to fruition, man. So we got Ryan, Ricky, David, and me. No shot colors yet. We're still working on them. Yeah, shot colors in production. But um, we're easy like Sunday morning, man. We're going to hit some some stuff. I had to take, uh, I had to do extra Adderall because I knew we were talking to Ricky. And he talks about, Ricky's one of the guys who talks like smart people talk. Yeah, science, science, science. Science, 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 science. So, <laughs> Ricky, we are super amped, right? We talk a lot. We see each other quite a bit. Um, we just haven't pinned down a podcast, which we've been talking about. So this will probably end up being a multi-part series once we start getting into all the goodness of uh, calcium and lethal diamonds and and flight medicine and handoffs and physiology and all this other crazy crap. So that being said, Ricky, why don't, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and then I'll, I'll elaborate on the the way that we met. Yeah, sure, man. Uh, so my name is Ricky. I am the lead for research and development for the Special Operations Medical Coalition. It's a 501c nonprofit uh, focused purely on the soft medic and making sure we take care of him or her in every way possible. And then on top of that, uh, I do a little dabble in some journals. So I am a section editor for the Journal of High Threat and Austere Medicine. And then I am an uh, Army flight medic. So, and a giant Philadelphia Eagles fan. Whoa. How about that? Got to plug the Eagles. So about, I guess it would be, was it last May that you spoke at, at SeaTech? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Brendan Hartford, you, you yeah, know, right from Chicago, from Chicago, yeah. right? Great dude. Uh, so we're doing a pre-conference podcast, just letting people know like what's coming up and things like this. Well, I do have to, I'm going to, because Brendan's going to be listening to this. Uh, so I should just blame Brendan for the whole damn thing. But um, that being said, we're going through and when we get the stuff, we're on the executive committee. So when they plan these out, people potentially could cancel last minute, this and that, blah, blah. So you kind of have this working agenda that's going on. And so you don't always have names or where the speakers are from that are going to be presenting. And so what was the name of your of your presentation at CTEC last year? Uh, Hypocalcium and the Lethal Triad. Okay. So that's what I heard. No names associated, no affiliations, no where they work or anything like this. <laughs> and I, I may have uh, made fun of it. Just a little bit. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that sounds super exciting. You know, like, oh, God, yeah, please, more, can we? Because I really thought it was just going to be some doctor from some place that is just literally, I mean, I figured that is going to be my coffee and Adderall break. I'll maybe go grab some food, make my way in there at the end. And as soon as we walk in there, we see some of the guys that you work with. And, and they're like, oh, man, like we just listened to the podcast where you talked about uh, Ricky's presentation. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? He's like the calcium. I'm like, oh, are you kidding? Ricky works there? I'm like, oh, crap. He's giving the presentation? I'm like, shit. Felt like <laughs> such a jackass, man. Such a jackass. So I sat there the whole time. You gave an incredible presentation and more enjoyable than just your presentation was the, uh... was the response from everything, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, so Ryan and I were sitting next to each other. David was there, too. And we were just sitting there because, I mean, you could have sold tickets to some of the questions and responses you got back to that um, 
from from docs from all over. We will we'll keep the names Name out down. for for <laughs> to protect the the innocent and guilty on this. But um, it was absolutely hysterical because you just disrupted the shit out of stuff that I mean we had no idea that, that was going to happen, and it was great. And so yeah, so Reed Smith, nobody told me who was giving the presentation or anything like that. But uh, yeah, you gave a great one. And, and then I apologize, man. I think I came up and gave you a hug and just apologized for for just being so narrow focused and not knowing who was giving the presentation. And uh, not creating a safe space. I know. We needed to create a safe space. It was a, uh, it was a calcium neutral one. Right? Yeah. We don't want calcium. You know, is it what kind of calcium is it? You know, I don't want it to have to say, right? It's, it's a gender neutrality for calcium, That's, if yeah. you will. We respect calcium safe space. Um, so anyways, that being said, we are going to go over a bunch of stuff. And, and I think we should follow up with uh, the SOMSI stuff to promote people to like go there uh, to their website. You know their website offhand, Ricky Benjamin? Yeah, www.somc with a hyphen uh, .org. And if I'm not mistaken, you uh, also have some interaction with one JJ who we've had on some recent podcasts. Oh, yes, I do. JJ's the uh, lead for the training pillar. That dude is uh, absolutely amazing. I, he's, he's a genius, man. I love that dude, man. Uh, yeah. yeah, hysterical. We had some long text messages last night that I was like, holy crap, dude. Like, we're doing HRO, and he was comparing it into the totem rack, and I'm like, mother of goodness, man. That is fucking brilliant. While he was naked at the cigar bar. As he was naked at the cigar bar. Yeah, so that's cool. Actually, actually. <laughs> which is Which is weird. He didn't even have his flip-flops on. Yeah, the grass like, does that include flip-flops? He goes, no, Sean, naked is naked. <laughs> Until it's not. Yeah, he called me out on it. Like, holy shit, like, I, I broke a rule as far as nakedness goes. But uh, that being, <laughs> I don't know what to say. All right, so what we're looking at doing is hitting on some of the, the emergent properties of, of what you've caused the disruption in and where you're at with it. And I think since we've got, we can talk straight from the horse's mouth on this one, is if you could talk about how it originated, what, what opened your eyes to this potential issue or this gap that exists and where that is with, with how you came upon with calcium as far as how that relates to the lethal triad would be freaking awesome and then kind of how it's developed because i know you've gotten a lot of pushback and obviously you know we saw it at the some of the c-tech stuff and a lot of those i just bit my tongue on right there were some very ill thought out illogical questions coming at it to battle it which basically could be you don't even have to get into the the chemical the physiology that anything they just are taking a linear response to a nonlinear situation because they work in hospitals and don't understand the problem. Um, without even having to go deeper, we can disprove it on that. But if you could talk about some of the roadblocks you've hit on, where you're going, because it looks like you're making some great waves forward in that whole paradigm change, I guess, would be a way to describe it. And if you could hit us and just kind of take us through that path, we're going to interrupt you constantly on questions. So just be ready for that. But if you could take us through that path, that would be awesome. And from there, we're actually going to get back into talking physiology, talk about some stuff as far as flight medicine goes to, to reach some of those guys uh, out there listening that are flight medics and also get into certain things specific to handoffs, um, to being able to, to do your planning and stuff as a flight medic. But starting off, let's hit it with the academic side of what you've done with Calcium Ricky. Yeah, sounds good, man. So uh, I was on a rotation in Camden, New Jersey, working in the emergency room, and we got the call. Oh, actually, I was working in OB at the time, and uh, we got the call to the OB floor that a young woman was coming to the ER who had massive hemorrhage coming uh, from a poorly done abortion. Uh, she had a spiral tear from her throat, from her vaginal cavity all the way to her uterus. So she had a uh, 
She's, she was in hemorrhagic shock, uh, so they, they called the chief uh, OB resident down to the ER to take control of that situation. So I ran in with her. Uh, we ran to the ER, and right from the get-go, it's chaos. So I, I snuck my way up to the head of the patient somehow, and what was brought in was exactly that, a, a young woman who was pale, diaphoretic, she had bimanual pressure put in by the ER resident by the time we get gotten down there. Um, the paramedic explained that in 16 years of doing paramedicine, he's never seen so much blood in a room when he arrived. He described it as uh, four groceries bags worth of blood. It, it was it was mass chaos from the start because of how many people were in there. So what, what I was doing was um, trying to just look at her airway and talk to her and do pain responses because she was so in and out of consciousness. And I was I was pretty much a, a new medic to, to the game of like working the ER. So I had asked the nurse if she could rotate blankets like every three minutes warm blankets just because you know they make the lethal try it's such a big deal i wonder why and so every time we put a blanket on her somebody rip it off and every time i put a blanket somebody rip it off and so i was losing that battle and so i was like hmm what could help with her uh consciousness so i found a, a very large npa and threw that in and that's when i fell in love with npas for the fact of it's a great loc marker it's a great constant pain response um and that actually ended up bringing her back to consciousness from the pain and then she would spit a few words off and let us know where she was at. And then she'd go back under and go unconscious again. So they, they called for the mass transfusion to happen. The ER doc called for TXA, but the OB owned the room. So she shot it down and asked for hemabate and methadrine. And if you're not familiar with hemabate and methadrine, they're both oxytotic drugs. So they help with uterine clamping. So obviously in something like a spiral tear, uh, you want the uterus to clamp down itself and stop, stop the bleeding. Since uh, Hemcon was such an issue, uh, the bimanual pressure was failing, and they were fighting that that good fight. Well, uh, as this is all going on, it's dynamic. It somehow gets really boring for me because there's nothing much for me to do uh, besides, you know, talk, I'm talking to her, trying to get her to come back to consciousness, and it's just not working. So I decide I'm going to start listening to her lungs as the mass transfusion starts. And first check, yeah, they were fine. And then she came back to after the first two units went, went in and she said that her lips were starting to go numb and her chest was tight and she's in a lot of pain. And then she went straight unresponsive again. And I was like, huh, this is crazy. So I listened to her lungs again and it sounded like Niagara Falls. And at that point, uh, you know, I told the attending, hey, um, it's got like flash pulmonary edema. Something's going on. They stopped the blood and they later attributed it to it being transfusion related acute lung injury, which is pretty rare to happen but happened and i remember leaning over to one of the nurses and i was like hey if we don't keep this patient warm and we don't start covering some of these basics she's gonna go in the dic and so the er doc makes the call hey we need to get her to surgery we're at a you know we're at a point where we have the bimanual pressure it just keeps failing and we're we're losing this fight and the blood is now killing the patient when it needs to be saving the patient so i did not fall into the or but they took her up she did get confirmed uh, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Um, they did a balloon stent, and the, she had a full recovery a couple of days later. She was extubated two days later, and I checked up on her the rest of the time she was there. So what that did for me was it created an obsession with why did she never stop bleeding, and what could we have done better overall to help with that case so i got really deep into the the clotting cascade physiology and then the hemorrhagic shock and then shock in general physiology and what i the first thing i found was that you can't turn fibrinogen into fibrin without calcium 
it's physiologically impossible. And uh, I think it's like uh, in the textbooks, it's like less than 0.56 mil equivalents uh, per liter of calcium. And you start seeing like fibrinogen degradation or you don't see the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. And I, I start, I asked the simple question is, well, shit, like, if fibrinogen turns fibrin or calcium turns fibrinogen to fibrin, why aren't we giving it? Mm-hmm. And so I went back to um, school I was at and I asked one of my closest buddies and he was like, I don't know, man, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I, then I remember asking an instructor and that instructor told me, well, we do give calcium. Look at the team maps that, you know, it's, it's for citrate. And I was like, oh man, this is crazy. They do do it. It's for citrate. It just wasn't a good enough answer. I, I, I didn't get it. So I, I went deeper into that, and I ended up calling uh, Will Eisenhart. Will Eisenhart's on the hypocalcemia working group. He's at a Yale's PA school right now. Cool. A really, really smart guy. Uh, pretty much just army knife of, of medicine and the military. Uh, Will, who's my greatest mentor, told me, this is a terrible idea. You're going to cause pulmonary embolisms, or pulmonary emboli, sorry, and you're, you're probably going to kill people because you're going to cause mass clotting. And I was like, well, damn. That's a that sucks, and you know. So I I went deeper from that, and I didn't want to take that as a final answer. And I I kept calling Will, and I kept calling my closest friends, and going back and forth about why it's so it was so physiologically correct. And I just kept finding it more and more and more in clotting physiology, and I kept finding it more in cardiac physiology, obviously, and and then other pathways, and just took it from there, really. And I had to do a research assignment at work. And I presented it, I presented the hypocalcemia and lethal triad as that research assignment, and then that's where it really sparked the interest. And then I started finding the retrospective studies, and I started bringing traumatic arrests into the pre-hospital world at my job, and how, you know, calcium plays such an integral role in the cardiac cycle, and if the heart becomes hypocalcemic, you know, what's going to fix a traumatic arrest, which is different than just a cardiac arrest, and then if you have the patient hemorrhagic shock and now we're giving him citrated blood or now we're giving him citrated blood products, are we helping him or him or her? Or are, we, are we causing more problems? So that's that's where it all stemmed. I know that's a, that's a lot, hefty, but that, that's no, no doubt where the idea came from. It was a lot of late nights, drawing out physiology and pathways, uh, just taking that and seeing if we couldn't and asking the questions. And the common answer I, I got back then and the common answer I still get to this day when I bring it up is from the citrate angle. And that's what um, our working group is trying to change. We're trying to change that citrate-only mindset and perspective and then show where this is biochemically and physio- physiologically correct. So what we have going on, I super lucky uh you know you want to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you so that's what i try to do i have a um a working group composed of myself will eisenhart like i said from yale uh sonky oak who was at the c-tech meeting he's yeah. from Pitt med school he is, M- is mph and then a third year med student uh former sark i got cody rankin who's a fellow flight medic of mine uh, and then uh two other guys who are uh, medics in the community and then uh we like to, we have one doc who likes to play in the working group, and we refer to him as the Jeff Siegler, uh, not just Jeff. But Jeff is a senior attending at WashU uh, St. Louis. Cool. So we we create. I, I was lucky enough to create this working group of guys who just are also tackling the problem. So what we're trying to do moving forward was 
mass education. So start start posing the problem, start asking the question. So we we got the CTEC meeting in May of 2018, uh, and like you said, Sean, that that's what started a lot of the questions from the doctors and some of the paramedics that were in the uh, in the audience. And that's what that's where I met you guys. You know, you Ryan, uh, Dave Calloway, Re, uh, and then a bunch of the other guys in the audience were, were great. Claire Park, uh, and then we went from there. And from CTEC, we didn't do any more conferences, but the emails chain started, and then the questions and the answers were coming more frequently, and the protocol writing. And then for this year, I'll be presenting at. Um, SAMHSA uh, 2019 on the 9th for the Millsoft track and as well as given the CTEC update during the CTEC meeting. And then what we what we found is that we really needed research. So the common denominator in all the calcium stuff is that there's a lack of research. There are a group of retrospective studies uh, that were conducted. One was with the, the British military. One and then a couple at some trauma centers where they looked at calcium levels on arrival to their hospital, or they they looked at calcium levels in the charts post trauma stat labs where they're looking at the the ionized calcium level or the free calcium level, and they they were finding that the people that came in uh, were hypocalcemic to a degree, whether mild, moderate, or severe, from hemorrhage itself. And then once they gave these mass transfusion protocol, these mass transfusions, which most institutes are calling that six units or more or ten units minimum for the mass transfusion, they were becoming more hypocalcemic over time, and you you attribute that to the citrate problem. Uh, so what we're doing, what we have going on right now, is the working group has a we have a literature review under review right now, a um, narrative literature review, and then we have. Uh, a multi-center prospective study that's going to be happening, and then we have some uh, retrospective studies that we're gonna that are gonna be coming down the pipeline. Wow! So two things real quick for Ryan. I know Ryan's gonna run. I don't think anybody has ever kept us shut up as long as Ricky just did. Like, no, dude, I've got like four freaking articles. We're going through key maps over here. Like, we're actually looking shit up as you're talking. Like, I don't think we've ever been quiet this long, dude. That's weird. Hey, congratulations. I know we sent you some element stuff that should be at your doorstep <laughs> tomorrow, but we probably need to send him more. I think so. Like, he's, he has a calming effect. He does have a calming effect. It's like, uh, like if I could put my head on your bosom, Ricky, and you could just talk <laughs> hypocalcemia to me, like, I could go to bed at night even while I'm on Adderall. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, dude, great job. All right, so Ryan, go ahead. <laughs> I want to hit you with this, man. See kind of what you think. Uh, so, like, talking about being disruptive, at that presentation, slide four is your proposal, right? And so you didn't even, like, beat around the bush. You hammered straight into, like, I want to change the lethal triad and get rid of it and make it a box. Yep. Do you think, like, some of that pushback and the hard, you know, walls and things you have to come through stem from that? Do you think if you would have approached it as a soft medic protocol change that people would have been more receptive? I do. I, I, I 100% do, and I didn't want to take that approach. Yeah. Um, because it's because this topic, to me, to me, of course, and I, I, yes, I have a bias against it, but the topic is so important that you see it in coagulopathy. Yep. You see it in hypothermia. You see hypothermia affecting it. You see it in acidosis, and you see um, traumatic arrest being a, a, a calcium problem also at its origin. And 
to just say, hey, you know, let's look at our DCR protocol and make an adjustment, I thought we weren't doing our patients uh, justice. So if we're going to have a shape and we're going to have um, this idea that everybody, you know, refers to, it's a it's a get out of jail free card when we go, what are we trying to prevent? And everybody goes, the lethal triad. And then you go, <laughs> high five. Uh, you're right. You passed your test. There's so much more that goes into that triad. And hypocalcemia wasn't just a citrate problem. So in order... I, I agree in order to disrupt the community the right way, and this is a trauma problem, it's not just a military problem, it's not just a civilian problem, it's a trauma problem. We had to, we had to introduce it and, and give it the respect, that, and that's how I looked at it. By giving it its own category, I thought it gave it the attention, the respect that it deserved in order to make that presentation um, disruptive enough. Because people talk about protocol change all the time, yeah. and, and people fall asleep. Exactly. Now, I mean, it's like, so, it's one of those things, like, I, I agree completely. If, you, if you're going to step into, like, blue water and leave the muck behind, like, you got to jump curbs, man. Yeah. If you don't do it, people won't start talking. Like, you need that in-depth conversation and look behind it that this is getting now. Yeah, and it, it's funny, you know, the, if, if there's one thing the work, our working group has done, it's uh, played geometry over the last year. Trying to find a new shape that people <laughs> like. And I, You know, it's funny, I get emails about uh, shape recommendations all the time. <laughs> that's funny that's awesome that is yeah. hysterical i love the way you attacked it man because you you ruffled feathers man you like you you jumped into people's freaking kool-aid apple jacks man like you screwed it up and i think that's what brought the attention on right if you would have handled it a different way people would have just seen it as is somewhat benign and uh maybe a like good idea good fairy idea fairy man. from you know from a combat medic but the way you hit it you you ruffled feathers and, and that was obvious now Leading into that, you wrote some stuff down uh, as we've been talking the last couple of weeks uh, because I saw what was going on to C-Tech stuff and I know you were able to go off the videos and stuff from the last December and then the one that you were speaking at and then you've obviously gotten emails and stuff like that. What are some of the frequently the opposition statements or the questions that are at you? So I, I know you have kind of a list that, that you've accumulated because we were talking to Van Stralen a few times. Um, and I think with about- this question, I think like what's also good to put in is because guys at units are like, okay, this is a thing. They're starting to learn about it. They're starting to get into it. So they're going to have to start challenging their direction. Like, right, hey, like, hey, I want to incorporate this in this group or this unit. So if you can start giving some power behind their counter arguments to these guys, exactly. I think so that would help them out. They'll probably hear too. And, and some of those responses, and we can kind of brief those. But if you can hit on some of the arguments that you've been getting hit on, and then we can kind of discuss those point by point, would be cool. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so I'll give a generic overview. So uh, argument one is why. Uh, so that we'll, we'll have to spend some time discussing the physiology separately from some of the other stuff. So we'll, we can probably do that last after some of the frequently asked questions. So the big one is why does this even matter? Uh, the next one I get is gluconate versus chloride. Um, so to break that down real quick, so you have calcium chloride or you can get calcium gluconate, uh, 10% solution, one gram, 10 milliliter vials. Uh, if you look at chloride, I like to call chloride the physiologic calcium. It's the one that you see in the, it's the ionized form of calcium. It's the most readily available for pathways, it's the most res- readily available in the cascade. So for me, I like if we're going to give calcium, let's give the source. Let's give the one that's most potent. On top of it, you have 13.6 milliequivalents of calcium per vial of chloride, which comes out to like, I think it's like 266 milligrams of, of calcium in that vial. 
versus uh, calcium gluconate, which is 4.65 milliequivalents per vial. So if you're going to give chloride versus gluconate, you have to give 30 mLs of gluconate versus 10 mLs of chloride. Now, the counter argument to that one that I get commonly is, well, back in uh, residency or, you know, back in class, I was always told that chloride is necrotic to the tissues or chloride burns when it goes in or extravasation has killed patients in the past or I've debrided wounds that were caused by chloride extravasation. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not wrong. It's not a it's not a wrong counter argument. But the counter argument I give to that one is if you check patency of a line, if you confirm you have patency when you gain access to the uh, to the patient and in the ma majority of the military pop population the have very healthy veins and they have very healthy tissues and they don't have like an osmotic or oncotic uh, issues in their with their blood or their uh, vascular system. If you slow push that chloride, you might cause a small burn, but you're not going to just blow through veins, mm -hmm. and you're going to get that physiologic form in. And the the risk associated with that is low. Uh, the risk associated with giving them the chloride is low. And what's also great about uh, the calcium chloride, it is um, a natural inotrope. So you will get a blood pressure spike with it, and it will go to the heart and allow the heart to talk to itself better. Uh, the other art, other questions that we frequently get asked is, um, so that's the how to give it. The, the how to give it argument um, is, should we slow push it? Should we put in a 100 ml bag and drip it in? Does it have to be in a central line? That's the, and then can you do it IO? So does it have to be in a central line question? I kind of just covered that one with the slow push. You can give gluconate all day and not worry about the extravasation as much. You do have to be a little bit careful with the chloride. Like I said, make sure you have the paint line, slow push it. That uh, just seems it, like a silly thing though, man. Like, dude, yeah. like, we give, you know, I mean, civilian max give, you know, D50, D25, you know, not good to get outside. I mean, there's easy ways to check that you're, yeah. you're, you've got a paint line, dude. That just seems like a really weak ass argument for people to bring up. But um, and Fenegrin's still in the yeah. book too. Fenegrin, so, right. uh, the most, the most commonly extravasated medication is, um, are vasopressors. And one of the most commonly, uh, extravasated medication is vasopressors. Uh, so mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and they're necrotic to tissue as well. And they get, um, they get extravasated all the time. Yeah. And we're still giving vasopressors cause it works. Yeah. Uh, and it's so important in so many different uh, different pathophysiologies. So I, I agree with you. It's a, it's a fair argument because that's what's been the norm for so long. I mean, if if someone came up to me uh, for my generation of medicine and said, "Hey, let's start pushing normal saline instead of blood," I would be thrown away too because my education tells me blood is the best best fluid choice in the hemorrhagic shock patient. Mm -hmm. So when someone like me comes up to these to these docs and say, "Hey, we can give calcium through an IV line," and their whole career, you know, they've been taught it has to be central line only. I, I see the argument. And I think it's fair. It's just when they shut off the idea completely, it, it's difficult. Is there any evidence to support it? The other frequently asked question. There is retrospective data that supports it. There is no hard prospective data that says how much, what the correlation is between blood loss and calcium levels. There's no prospective data that says how much calcium needs to be given to correct the problem. And then there is no prospective data that supports all state mortality or 30 day mortality in the ICU. So th that is the truth. What what are we basing most of this off of? We're basing off the retrospective data with biochemical and physiologic um, function. 
So it is biochemically correct, it's physiologically correct, and then the retrospective data supports it well enough that we can give it. And then there's the experience-based medicine side of it where the cons- I've had a large consensus factor for hosp- from hospitals and medics in the field or in combat that do this, and they've all had, they've all had a positive result from it. Uh, which I think is extremely important to talk about in the experience-based side. And then the other question I get up is, well, how much citrate's in a bag? Or how much citrate matters or to that effect? So if you look at the blood transfusion bag that most guys carry, uh, it's CPDA1 now. Or if you look at the blood banking program, all the blood coming out of the Army blood banking program at least is all CPDA1, uh, which is a citrate phosphate dextrose adenine. Uh, mix, which is 1.66 grams of citrate per bag, which is a good improvement uh, because the other uh, bags used to be three grams and that's for whole blood. But if you're looking at your blood products, you're still seeing three grams of citrate in a bag. So when you're doing a whole blood transfusion, you're feeding your patient 1.66 grams of citrate per bag. But when you're looking at products and a lot of trauma centers and a lot of medics only can carry products, you're given a three to three ratio of citrate. So when you're doing your one-to-one-to-one, you're looking at six grams of citrate for that one-to-one-to-one. Okay. So you're smacking your patient with citrate. And that that's really the, the frequently asked question side, uh, unless you guys have some more. That's just the ones I wrote down. Those are the most common. So there's a trauma doc of the one you weren't able to make that uh, I want to throw up every time his pie hole opens at that meeting. What was some of the stuff that he was bringing on? So he's a... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, evidence plus consensus equals a good idea fairy when you have and then what that was in relation to was that was in relation to us exactly what i just said we have a finite amount of evidence or we have enough evidence i should say and we have the consensus to say we should be doing this and we have the experience-based side of the house to say we should be doing this which he attributed up to that just being a good idea fairy um and then the other one was increasing the workload on the provider and then if you're in an indirect threat situation or a tactical field care situation uh, for the military guys listening to this, that this is just unnecessary workload. That if you're in a barricade, if there's a barricade shooter and you have a casualty in a room, that there's no point to start doing a blood transfusion with a, with calcium administration. The calcium side being the problem. The, the blood transfusion, he's from listening to the video again, there's no issue doing the, the blood, but discussing whether or not we need to start doing calcium infusions or calcium pushes that was just uh that was ridiculous yeah do you want to start off on that one you want me to increase workload (laughs) that's good yeah yeah ricky what do you what is your take on that on some of those as far as fighting back and then then i'll yeah my stuff so my my mindset on that one is i mean that's I think it's a very linear mindset and a in a nonlinear dynamic situation. So you're trying to bring like scientific logic into like complexity logic, which they don't you know they Mix. don't equal each other, and you know that better than anybody. Uh, you're the one who introduced me to all this stuff. So my issue with it is that if I were to tell you that um, you know putting on a tourniquet stops bleeding and will save someone's life, and then you come back to me and say, well that dude might lose his limb or it's going to cause such bad ischemia that it's just not worth it later on. And then the next counter argument is, well, it's going to keep the guy alive. But it increases workload. That it, it just it, my take on it is it, it's like a cop out. It's a cop out excuse and it's it tells me that you don't understand your uh, procedure times and it tells me that you haven't 
worked on your individual procedures long enough to know how much time correlates. And if you have an intervention that's able to help increase the percentage of guys coming home or increase the percentage of survivability, then I don't, I don't see an argument as to why workload's a problem. Yeah, and, and I'm going to go – it's going to seem like I'm going down a rabbit hole real quick or, or straight voltage, but it'll key back in. This is the same individual who sits on a group consortium that has pushed basically all first responders need to carry nothing but tourniquets on them for active shooter responses. Interesting. When in reality, we can pull 30 years of data to show that that is the least likely likely procedure you will do on an active shooter because the majority of the wounding patterns are to the chest and to the head. Very, very, like a handful you can point to a tourniquet would have been beneficial. You know, when we did San Bernardino, we didn't have one One. out of 20 something casualties because they are not wearing PPE. Tourniquets, fuck yeah, man, absolutely. In the military, because you are wearing level four body armor, you you have body armor on that that limits Removes the, that the area where a penetrating injury can occur, where that uh, explosive device is going to impact. You have body armor on. Our kids do not have body armor. People are not going to work with their body armor. We're not going to the movies with body armor on, and so the wounding pattern obviously changes. But he is part of that organization that was that that basically has spewed out to this day that first responders literally just need. They stop at tourniquets, man. They stop at tourniquets being the life-saving procedure for active shooter response for treating civilians, which is the most asinine. I mean, it's terrible, man. Um, so putting that into context is that is his belief on that. Right. It's obvious that coming from his background, even in an operational context, uh, as limited as that may be, uh, supporting civilian SWAT or anything like that, He's hitting it from a different level of analysis, and that level of analysis, as you said before, is linear in aspect, and you are working in a nonlinear environment. Um, The logic of practice changes too. Your practice for how you would control something in a hospital compared to how you control something in a pre-hospital, and not just a protocol-driven approach, but just a uh, an OODA loop type of thing. Like you're probing. This person is going down. You are going to try and probe everything you can. I was on a podcast last night and I said one of the biggest misconceptions that people get fed into them from paramedics to anybody that does pre-hospital, regardless of who you are, whether you're a doctor, you're a medic, you're an EMT, you're a nurse, if you're in the pre-hospital environment, you are not making a diagnosis. You You do not have the ability to make a diagnosis per definition outside of a hospital because the first thing is that you need trending, right? You need time. Time is part of that diagnosis. The second you start getting into lab values, you start getting the commuted tomography, you get into x-rays, you get into all these things that you do not have in the pre-hospital environment. But what you have in the pre-hospital environment is the ability to identify an issue and then intervene. And then it's a noodle loop. It's a closed system, right? It's a closed loop system. Did my intervention work? Did it have any benefit or not? If no, then try something else. You keep probing to be able to do that. And in that, if you you cut off your ability to do that because you think you're making a diagnosis, you are freaking wrong. Your your logic of practice changes dramatically when you do not have the assets and capabilities that exist within a hospital, let alone a surgical table, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny, especially with the workload thing. I, I wrote down the amount of steps it took to give calcium in the initial protocol, which was a, a drip when a 100cc bag was going to be a 100cc bag bolus. Uh, but I, I, we changed that to the push after talking to some really smart guys versus the amount of steps it takes to do an innovation, which is a primary skill, and 
tactical medicine in the civilian sector and one that SWAT doctors will definitely do if they have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't even come close. I came out to about 11 steps to gain IV access plus, plus put calcium in a bag, all the way down to opening your aid bag at step one, um, to 35 steps to uh, innovate someone. So increasing workload, I, I, I just don't see it. Yeah, and I, I think that argument just it's to just begin with irrelevant. Is, is irrelevant, yeah, man. Like, it's like it, I wouldn't even it's address your job that. as a tactical medic to be able to do these things. Like you're either you're either good at your craft or you're not. And you know when we get into other things like we were talking with JJ and stuff, once you start getting to other levels like certain things with Roboa and things like this, like now you're reaching into a different level of like okay, like what is the application for doing this? I mean that's. Uh significantly different but with hey, that, just, the same guys that don't want to do calcium want to do reboa and the same guys it's like uh, the same guys that want to do reboa want to do calcium and reboa to to help with the hyperkalemia problem so they'll do calcium there but they don't want to talk about it for a uh, hemorrhagic shock that's neat <laughs> that's, that is so neat let's go do some reboa today <laughs> let's do that do you even reboa where do you buy those <laughs> um no, that's some that's some good points, man. Um, now, where are you now? That, that like some things are being adopted, man. Like that is being adopted, yeah. and no matter where you go now, you're hearing it's uh, coming down the, the line. The stuff that's coming down the line, man. Um, so, so who is on board with that, and and where where do you see that going? Hopefully, so the guys are on board. So I. My unit has adopted the protocol. It's completely approved, and it has been blessed off by Colonel Andre Cap, who's the chief hematologist for the you know the U.S. Army and uh, Institute of Surgical Research. So that was a that was a big help. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to do uh, give a unit of blood because we have it. So we'll give the unit of, after the first unit. We're going to do the push of one gram of calcium gluconate if we're confident in the patency, and then if the that medic's not comfortable doing the chloride uh they'll carry gluconate and they'll do the 30 ml gluconate push which i think is super important to to tell guys is um straight from cat's mouth was i'm going with gluconate or chloride but it's down to the battalion surgeon's discretion or the you know the medical director's discretion as to what the medics are going to do so i i think it's a step in the right direction either way um Um, so we're going to do the 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 chloride push and then if you can do gluconate if, if that's what you have if that's what you're carrying and we're going to repeat that every two units. And so they're given that. So they're looking at gluconate is kind of like a little bit easier, potentially not potentially some of the stuff if you have uh, any uh, exfiltration or anything like that with an IV with the issues that they have with uh, calcium chloride is they feel a lot more comfortable going with gluconate, but it's going to be up to that specific surgeon to decide how they push that. Yeah, man, because uh, electrolytes scare people. Uh, that's just that's just what it's come down to. I've, I've figured out. You know, you start talking about electrolytes, you, you can get you get into a weird game. Uh, but it, it's it's on the discretion. I think some, from day one, people are taught to check for patency, whether yep. you're at the SOCOM level, you're at the, the AIT level, or EMTB to paramedic to even when EMTI was a big thing or yeah. wilderness permit. Patency is such a big check. So it's a it's a it's a failsafe. You know. It won't kill someone to infiltrate a bunch of normal sailor LR, but it's still painful and it's still a problem. So if we're che- like, you know, what I'm saying, like, if we're if we're worried about infiltrating normal saline, and we we put a stopgap there, which is checking the patency, so we don't do it. Like, there's there shouldn't be such a concern about the uh, the calcium chloride. Yeah, and, and I mean, even with gluconate, I mean, you're hitting that end goal of what you're wanting. It's just gonna be a little bit. The other issue is like. So my argument, like I said, we're gluconate to chloride. Um, 
besides it being the physiologic thing, if, when you get even deeper into the science, gluconate, so the calcium is bound to the gluconate, right? And in order for that gluconate molecule to come off for the calcium to do its job, there has to be potassium available. Yeah. There has to be a good level of potassium available, and that has to go through, and then that gluconate also has to go through the liver. Yeah. It, so, it'll, it'll be interesting because, uh, I mean, just doing calcium pre-hospital, that's that's a huge jump forward, and I'm being sarcastic. Um, it's in every ACLS protocol, man. Yep. Right? I mean, got, the, I no mean seriously, what the fuck? Dude, yeah. yeah, you've got anything with hypocalcemia, hyperkalemia, or calcium channel overdose, um, the calcium channel blocker, uh, OD, man, like... I worked in Florida, dude. Like we get calcium all the time, and it's just so funny that it's it's so for this specific polarizing now polarizing for oh, this. Yeah. Like, dude, like we would give it in without thought, man. Because like your population there is really young, or everybody is like a banana peel from dying with cardiac problems, and so you know it, it is not uncommon to have cardiac arrest or or you know close to cardiac arrest uh, of people with calcium channel blocker overdoses and that are you know, hypocalcemia, hyperkalemia, like not infrequent whatsoever. Calcium gets pushed. And that's been one of, and that's been one of my arguments I've always had too. And what's really funny is if anybody who's listening has ever been involved in a, in a code, there yeah, they hammer that stuff. 16 IOs being started, 14 lines, every central line possible being plugged and not a single person checks patency nope. before slamming, not a slow push, nope. slamming that chloride into that person's body mm-hmm. to try and make, to try and, get the heart to talk to itself again like and so that's where I that's why I, I, I laugh because we, in that context it's like oh of course we'll slam calcium chloride the patient's in cardiac arrest what the what we're trying to say and what we're trying to do is let like, it prevent come on ricky those patients are dying you're not talking about dying patients on your end <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about this dying. is not extremist yeah <laughs> let's prevent the cardiac let's prevent the traumatic arrest let's prevent <laughs> the rhythm so it's almost like make a pre-hospital uh, cardiac problems great again or something like that. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> the working group is definitely trying to bring because besides cardiac tamponade the cardiac game is not spoken about in pre-hospital trauma it's just not so, and I think we need to shed more light on the physiology of traumatic arrest in relation to the lethal tried and all that all that other stuff being thrown around or we can just have Dan Trailing go in and screw with them about like what's going to happen with reperfusion and all that yeah Oh, yeah, this reperfusion is a whole nother great topic. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. hypoxia versus uh, hypoxemia. That's another. That's that another was a historical topic. conversation, man. <laughs> a historia. A historic, man. You're in an ahistoric environment. All right, so we're. I think we're going to dive into some of the things that I want to go into now, but I think we'll hold off for a second um, to reach to kind of build up to it when we start talking about a little bit of the pros and cons with, with the evidence-based medicine game and what people believe is it says and what it actually says and, and where the positives and where the potential negatives are. But we talked about a couple other things just to lighten it up just a little bit, uh, especially for somebody that's a product of Southern education like myself. Uh, we talked about a couple other things, man, as far as specific stuff to flight medics. And starting off right off the bat, I figured we would talk the triage piece a little bit with handoff pearls and yeah. a little bit with what your planning is because I really dug the triage piece that you're talking about, man. And so I figured let's talk about some lighter subjects for a second and then build back into to what we were, we were wanting to hit on. So triage, you were explaining it uh, a little bit and I liked your, your take on it, man. Yeah, uh, so triage. Triage is a really scary thing that, you know, there's 
you look, open up a textbook, there's hard lines drawn in the sand. And when you show up to a mass shooting at, at, at a concert, there's going to be these lines of delineation that pop up on the floor like a first yard, like a first down line on the TV for football. And you're not going to be able to do triage unless you're in the hot zone. And then you can't change unless you're in the warm zone and blah, blah, blah. And, and then just, you got to put down the triage tarp. The you tarp. need your triage yeah. tarp with your incident commander. And mm-hmm. he's the only one with the radio. Okay. Yes. Um, and that's only and, – and if you're that far, you failed your mitigation phase, your disaster response cycle, uh, but whatever. So I, I've taught triage to a couple people, and I, I always start with the same question. Is, um, I always ask is, who here's done triage? And some medical people, you know, they've never they – don't, they don't raise their hand, and that's because they, they're not a charge nurse or they haven't been in a two-patient or more scenario or they haven't looked at it from the way we, we look at it. So I like to say, okay, well, who here has gone grocery shopping or who here has gone put clothes on in the morning? And then everybody raises their hand. You know, they laugh, but the, the light bulb usually comes on because that's triage, right? So you, you wake up in the morning and you look at your phone or you look outside and you're like, man, it's 20 degrees today. Uh, I'm now going to go check my resources. I'm going to think about my next platform I'm going to get in to get to my next destination. And I'm going to make decisions based off of that, which is, am I going to wear long pants and a jacket? Am I going to try and tough it out and wear jean shorts and a t-shirt? And then am I going to preheat my car to set myself up for success so I'm already warm when I get in my car to drive to work? And then at my next destination, is it going to be warm or cold there? And we and we do that every day. Or Or the other one is like, I go grocery shopping and you know, I'm, I have a wife and four kids and we're completely out of food. And so I go to the, I go to the grocery store and I make that decision to, to, for the amount of groceries I'm going to buy in order to sustain myself for the month versus the 22 year old dude in college who's just trying to make it through his hangover in the next 24 hours to survive his situation. That's triage all day, every day. We do it every day in different contexts, but for some reason when we apply it to the infamous mass casualty scenario, it becomes this very complex topic. I, I think one thing, two things I need to bring up. One, that may be one of the issues with JJ and triage is I think when he goes to cigar bars, man, he doesn't wear clothes, so he doesn't he doesn't <laughs> get the he doesn't get his practice in. Well, he he eliminated the need for it. He eliminated the need for triage right there. He just goes naked. Um, number two is I know you're trying to probably say you know what you're going to wear: long pants, jeans, or shorts. But it actually came out jean shorts. Hey man, I know Ryan likes jean shorts, and I wanted to plug Ryan. So some old school like '70s Levi's that you just I'm kind just, of super short. I'm gonna start rocking next summer. Is gonna be the corduroy ops. Corduroy ops, man, the short with the ones, Magnum man. PI mustache. That's awesome. If you could rock the jean shorts with the unscuffed uh, construction boots, I think. Do you think about well, that? No, I think Ryan should drop the uh, the Ryan Commando Medic Daisy Multicam Daisy Duke brand. Hell yeah, you should. I'm gonna have to start doing squats. <laughs> Eighteen pockets. <laughs> you can fit your everyday theory with. No, but I think that's good. With like, like a Lord Croft thigh rig. Yeah. <laughs> Cowboy boots with no socks on. That would be sweet. Breaking Bad. <laughs> no, I think I think that's good. Is is we need to simplify these things for how did triage get so complex? Where where I think it's just like everyone's they're afraid to start because they're afraid it's like, I'm not going to nail it the first time. Right. And that's the thing is like, you're not going to nail it. Like you're just right. sifting through stuff in order to make it like small bites that you can keep working on. Right. And there's like, it's, it's this fear. Like if I mess it up, I'm going to have an urgent here. And then, 
you know, he's not going to be an urgent, so like I can't move him because I'll look stupid in training. But I think he's just kind of letting that go and start broad and start a really easy triage and then work just work the problem. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a – I have a different outlook sometimes on the way people talk about triage and mascots. And I think it's an insecurity or trying to make their job sound a lot harder and it more is. intense than it is. So the guys that, you know, are teaching triage don't want to just seem like everyday people that teach triage. So they got to make it sound super intense. So, and, you know, yeah. that, that, that's just another outlook on it. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I, it is like people like when they start talking about stuff, like they like to overcomplicate it to make the lecture sound better. But in reality, it's just like you can give like maybe two or three rules and people can dig through it way easier and walk away <laughs> with a real skill set versus you talking for two hours about who knows what. But it has to, you have to have a diamond or a square or a circle. That is the only way to triage. I like a U. Yeah. Uh, Oh, that's not going to work for me. So, oh, well, then we're fucked. I guess we can't triage together. I can't go to your triage course. Well, I'm, then I'm not going to share any of my supplies with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Hey, real quick, go on to um, you were talking a little bit about triage as far as people getting hung up on what they're categorizing on compared to how you categorize it on a helicopter. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's that's just um, it goes to capability in the, in the tactical situation around you. So, I, I look at the, the aircraft as uh, usually a mobile ER. So when you're when most of the guys on the ground, like when they're doing their initial triage, it might be in that initial care under fire. You know, that medic might see his guys messed up doing self-aid and buddy aid, or he hears the call on the radio, and his triage starts immediately. And he's basing it off, you know, assets available to him or her or times of flight and what what like you know what type of concealment do I have? What type of cover do I have? Or how many helpers do I have? How many litters do I have? There's a lot more that goes in on on the ground triage. And what's urgent or what's you know what's urgent or priority or routine to the guy on the ground, it might be completely different for what's urgent priority or routine to me on the aircraft. So I we're gonna we're gonna retriage every one of your patients that gets on. So. It's, it's just something to talk about in the planning piece with the, with the flight medic, you know, and, and it's not, it's not to say that your triage categories were wrong at all. And it's just, we're in two different, we're just in two different situations with different capabilities. I think that's a thin, like an important point is talking about, you know, the ground medic, the assault force medic, and then talking with you guys. A lot of units don't get as much exposure to working with guys like we, we got to, you know? And yeah. so, I think that's one of those things you guys have to kind of sit down in your mission planning and talk about capabilities, talk about the timelines of the airframe, like, hey, in that first 10 minutes, if it's X patient, I know how long it's going to take for you to get there. I know how long you can be on station and kind of looking at those timing bubbles. And it's just like, hey, man, like if I can get them to you in that first 10 minutes or like whatever that window is, like we're just going to do a hot load, man. You're just getting I'm just dumping them so you can start cutting that time distance back to surgery. And it's, it, you're trying to juggle a lot of things, but I think it's a conversation that Guys, like, you know, I know a lot of, like, the, the SF guys never really dive into planning that much, but you need to understand who you're handing off to, what their capabilities are, what the timelines are, in order to make that triage decision of, like, do I just throw this guy on a platform and get him out of here? Or, do like, what what am I missing? Like, what are my time windows, and how does that play out? So I think that's a big point is the planning that you spend together with the ground force and then your other medical assets. Uh, mo yeah, most definitely. And then I even to go as far as... um. At what point do you overload? Um, When's yeah? What's your tipping point? The receiving facility, and then yep. what's your plan to get him 
out of that facility that's now overloaded to the the one that won't be overloaded. Yep. Uh, that's a big piece for us too. But we might get a call, you know, if we have a, mo- a couple patients, and, you know, someone who has a GSW the leg or, you know, two GSWs a leg and a tourniquet gets thrown on really fast. And then, you know, he's, he's got a heart, high heart rate, he's a little shocky. And then the next guy just, you know, got shrapnel. And then you got the close head injury patient who's unres- who's only responsive to pain. And you're, the initial triage for that ground dude, be, based on the tactical scenario and the environment, environmental pathology, that might be urgent for the first guy, you know, priority for the second or routine for the second. And then the close head injury, based off capabilities and what the, like I said, the tactical environment, that guy might be ruled expectant for right then there because of resource management. But I might get those guys in the aircraft and then because of my now environmental pathology, which is a moving aircraft per se, and wind if we don't close the door is, I might focus all my attention on the on the head guy because now I do have the platform and the supplies and the, the time, resource, you know, skill set to focus on him versus on the ground, that guy, you know, that that's that's a scary patient uh, yeah. versus making sure that the, you maximize all your efforts on the guy who's mildly shocky. So that, that's what I kind of mean with the triage. I, you got to keep it free flow. So I'm going to um, interrupt you on that one. I think that's a great point, man, is the context is different, it's right? Completely the, different. The threat level is different, right? Context. The context is different. You have different threats, right, that, that you may be dealing with in the air. And the uh, hazards, like the, and just talking about the environmental. Yes, is, the environmentals are totally different. So, I mean, it makes sense because it is nonlinear, man. So you can't, one size doesn't fit all. And I think that's, that's brilliant. And, you know, we know each other pretty well. And I know that although you're a flight medic, you've, you've done quite a bit of stuff, you know, on the ground too. Um, what are some of those, are, are you able to appreciate more stuff and make better, you know what I'm saying? Now that you kind of have seen kind of both sides of that, Spe- of that spectrum from yeah. you know, being on a helo and taking patients compared to being the dude on the ground and handing off, you know, is what, what's that kind of shown you? Is it, you know what I'm saying? Is it, has it put a different criticality? Which actually, into it? that's a kind of a big thing too. It's like, I mean, a lot of people don't quite understand that, but it's like going from like, we've had a lot of like the flight medics come and try and do the ground stuff. And it's really hard to switch gears and get into that type of thing. But like, you just did that. So it's like, that is a good point. Like kind of talk, what did you learn from that? Uh, I, you know, it gave me a better appreciation for the whole picture and allows me to advocate better for the ground guy. So you got, you got to look at, I like to say, you know, I want to be the hundred percent guy that supports you. So you have, they have way more decisions and uh, considerations to make. So that's what it really showed me is um, the planning side, man. It, it's where, I, where I'm way more influential now for the ground medic is assisting them in the planning. So my planning's simple. You know, uh, we're going to go from here to there to take a patient, and then we're going to go from there to there to drop them off, right? And I'm going to do some, some things in between. And then I'm going to help get that dude from the fix or the partial facility, the fixed facility, right? The, there, that's, that's pretty simple uh, compared to, and then all my equipment's with me and I can carry all my equipment with me versus now uh, when I'm doing the ground stuff, you know, you start looking at um, the spreading out of the equipment or being able to call in for resupplies or how do you cross load? Where's that, where's that litter at on target right now? It, it's not right next to me. Like it is for me in the helicopter. I know that litter is right there with me at all times. It's it's definitely giving me a, a better whole picture appreciation. And it's there's no longer a foreign land versus before. Like, you know, you talk to a lot of ground backs when they talk to the flight guys. They're like, I, I mean, I don't really understand what you guys do. But I know I put my patient on the bird and then they get to the hospital. 
so for me, it's it's awesome because I have a, the full spectrum appreciation. I you know I got the grasp of what's happening on the ground, and then I know what I'm doing, the bird, and then I know what happens when they get to the the facility, and then what I can do to intervene in all of those those spots. All right, that was the end of part one. Part two will be up in about a week. Get your damn hands up.